0: Tonight in Matthew 18, we get 35 verses chock full of red letters. It's Jesus just teaching, 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 and as He teaches, He's going to point out some different areas to us, draw us into some specific things that He has to share. Almost immediately from the beginning, by about halfway through verse, I guess the beginning of verse 3, we will find ourselves awash in the words of Jesus. Paul wrote in Ephesians 5:25 and 26, he said, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And so there is a washing, I absolutely believe, a cleansing effect that happens when we open the word of God and begin to read and study, but also open our hearts to the voice of God as he begins to speak to us in and through his word and by his spirit and he washes us. There is that purifying effect. You cannot get any other way. So uh, I hope you came ready to be washed and I hope you brought a towel because you're going to get soaked in the words of Jesus tonight. Father, we ask You to bless the teaching of Your Word. Lord, we pray that You will uh, again embed these words in our hearts, germinate them, Father, cause them to grow and nurture us toward a fuller understanding of You, a deeper walk with You, Father, may we be more instruments, vessels of Your glory than we were when we came in. May we be of great use to You, Lord, in the kingdom, whether it looks like a small thing or a large thing to us. May we be of use to You, Father, for bringing the Gospel to a lost and hurting world. Father, insert Your thoughts tonight and change our minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now before we get into Jesus' teaching, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. There are different aspects of the kingdom of heaven. We talked about this in depth in Matthew chapter 13. I won't go back there right now. Except to say that Jesus taught several parables. He taught the parable of the hidden treasure. The parable of the costly pearl. The parable of the dragnet of fish. And in these we get this picture, this wonderful picture of the kingdom of heaven. Which is not the church. Exclusively. Only. Only. It happens to include faithful Israel. The kingdom of heaven includes faithful Israel leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection. All those of God's people, all those who believed, who have faith in the one true God, would be part of that coming kingdom of heaven. Of course, it also involves the church, those who believe without seeing, who are specially blessed in this age of grace in which we live. The remnant of Israel... And tribulation saints, however, are also included after the church is raptured, taken up. The Bible's very clear about this that the, the God of all grace, even after he has pulled out the church, even after the program for this age, this dispensation is completed, he is still trying to save people. He's still pulling out all the stops. He still gives mankind an opportunity to come to salvation in Jesus Christ. It's absolutely astounding. And I've been asked before, and I believe I've shared before, why is it that God, after, after taking the church to be with Him, taking the faithful Christians home, why would He give people yet another chance? Because that's how God is. Because He is a God of second chances. Because He doesn't want anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance and be saved. The kingdom of heaven, then, encompasses all of that. It is not just the church having replaced Israel. That's faulty theology. Israel has its place. The church has its place. The kingdom of heaven is that larger, wonderful kingdom that is not yet, we have not yet seen it, although, although it has been spiritually activated. The church is acting as part of that. When, when we say things like, we're working for the kingdom, Or we want to have a kingdom mindset. We want to think in terms of the kingdom. We're not talking about something that's tangible, something that is reality as we will know it in the future. But we are talking about something that is spiritual, that is happening in us, among us, through us now in the world. The building of a kingdom. So remember that because Jesus is going to talk about the kingdom right off the bat. First 14 verses. He's going to give an object lesson for entry into the kingdom. How do you get into the kingdom? Jesus is going to tell us how to do that. In fact, if you're taking notes, I'll give you the outline ahead of time. The first thing we'll look at is conversion requirement, a conversion requirement for the kingdom. A conversion requirement for the kingdom, verses 1-14. through 14. But after the object lesson, Jesus moves more specifically to deal with organizational instruction for the church. It's conflict resolution. That's the second point. Conflict resolution for the church. And then finally, he's going to conclude with the Father's overarching standard for the whole kingdom. The kingdom of heaven, the church, everything combined in what I'm going to call compassionate release. So we have three aspects of this outline. If you want to use it, uh, conversion requirement, conflict resolution, and compassionate release. And along the way, there are some big truths here you're not going to want to miss. Jesus is going to end with a parable, but before He gets there, He's going to be very clear. Didactic instructional teaching. And I want you to watch these things and follow along. Verse 1, chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus... And said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is not a parable, folks. This is straight teaching. Unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's a great object lesson. Jesus looks around, finds a small child wandering by, a little boy, a little lad, and he he draws him over and says, Come here a second. It's an object lesson that the apostles are going to immediately forget in the short term. But they will remember in the long term Jesus calls what the Bible says a child it's actually the word there in the Greek it means little one he calls a little one to himself so we're talking probably a toddler little youngster he calls to himself and he sets this child this little one before him and says unless you become like this you're not getting in you want entrance into the kingdom of heaven you have to be converted like this child conversion requirement for the kingdom it's not a rebuke as much as a radical paradigm shift. More so even than in our day. Our day where we're trying to be child-friendly, although we're putting more restrictions on children and the fun they can have than ever before in the history of the world. But don't get me started. I mean, what, whatever happened to the days when you got to stand up in the back of the car while it was going 60 miles an hour? Those were good days. <clears throat> But Jesus is talking about a radical paradigm shift. In, in Jesus' day, children were at best an afterthought. Oh, you had them, and, and the more children you had, they were like, sure, arrows in your quiver, but they were in your quiver. To be raised by the wife, to be taken care of in the home, and when they were old enough, then the men could take them under wing and show them a few things. When they're a young man, strapping lad, that's the time, but not before that. Children were lesser beings in Jesus' day. And for him to make this statement, it, it just, it would completely go head to head with the thinking of the apostles. Who is greatest in the kingdom? Oh, they're thinking about a monarch or a ruler. They're, they're thinking about, you know, the people who assist in that, the higher ups, the guys who are going to sit on the right and the left of Jesus when he comes into his kingdom. That's what I'm talking about, Jesus, the greatest. And he says, no, you got it all wrong. You got to become little you got to become childlike. You need a conversion. Unfortunately, the word conversion, especially to the Jewish mind, has left a bad taste. For the Jewish people across the centuries, the church began to say things like, during the Crusades, convert or die. Be baptized or be beheaded. And so even today in Israel, if you talk about conversion, if you have Jewish friends and you want to invite them to, to Jesus... I encourage you not to use the word conversion because it's a sour word for the Jewish people, for a lot of people in our world. Oh, you're not trying to convert me, are you? But the truth is, gang, to get into the kingdom, we need a radical conversion. The Greek word literally means to change course or to to alter your mindset, to take our human mindset of greatness and, and set it aside completely for the idea of being little like a child. And this allusion to childhood conversion, gang, it's childishly simple. What is it about children that Jesus so loved? A couple things that you can see right here in the story. First off, little children come when Jesus calls. Jesus looks around and says, Hey, come here a second. We don't see the child running in the other direction screaming for dear life. We don't see the child standoffish. Who is this, this big guy with these other men? We see the child just come to Jesus. There is something attractive to a child about Jesus Christ. And they come when He calls to them. It's part of why I believe Jesus had to be a joyful Savior and not a stern Savior. For if He was a stern Savior, what child would want to go sit in His lap? What child would want to be around Him? And yet there was something about Jesus that was attractive even to the littlest of children. Little children come when Jesus calls. In fact, over in Matthew 19, one chapter over, look ahead. Verse 13 says, Some children were brought to Him so that He might lay hands on them and pray. And His disciples rebuked them. Which is why I said they had a bad short-term memory. Jesus will have just talked about becoming like a child to enter the kingdom and how precious a child is. And the apostles turn around and they rebuke people for bringing their kids to Jesus. Duh! Duh! These guys are real slow to learn. Which I know brings most of us some comfort. But Jesus said, Let the children alone, verse 14 of chapter 19, do not hinder them from coming to Me, for the Kingdom of Heaven belongs to such as these. And then verse 15 tells us, After laying His hands on them, He departed from there. Contact. Jesus loves the kids. Well, Rick, laying his hands on them may have just been a kind of a religious thing. Go and be blessed, young ones. <laughs> well, not according to Mark. Mark chapter 10, verse 16, gives us a little better picture. It says, He took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. He took them in his arms. You can just see Jesus gathering up the kids. Come here, come here, you little knucklehead. Dad, yeah, noogie, you know, and and loving on them and blessing on them. The children came to Jesus when he called. He's calling to you, and he's calling to me too. And you might ask yourself, what is your reaction to the call of Christ? What's your reaction to Jesus when He says, "Hey, come here, come here. You're involved in something there. Come here a second. Come over here. I want to talk to you. I want to show you something. Hey, you want to sit down and and talk?" Is our reaction that of busyness? I'll, I'll I'll get there, Lord. Give me a sec. Is our reaction fearful? Oh, man, if I go where Jesus is, I'm going to have to change my behavior. I'm not going to be able to stay where I am. And I kind of like where I am. Well, little children come when He calls. And He's inviting you to come to Him like a child. But little children also could care less about status or stature. And that's the main point. Jesus spells it out for us. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. A child could care less where they stand on the ladder of success. A child doesn't care who's in charge. Who's the boss? Pride, ambition, self-importance, arrogance, these are not kingdom ideals. The childlike quality of humility, whoever humbles himself like this little guy, Jesus says, that's great. That's the greatest person in the kingdom. And we need that kind of mind shift to understand this. The kingdom is not about notoriety. It's not about gaining applause. It's not about elevating ourselves to some kind of stature that's impressive. It's about becoming little. Access to the kingdom only comes through the humble, childlike mindset that comes a-running when Jesus calls us. That's a dramatic paradigm shift, and it's even a shift we need to consider and walk out today. Jesus said this. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of of God. Same concept, gang. You can't get into You can't see the kingdom. Unless you are born again, what happens when you're born again? You become childlike. First comes the spiritual birth, and it's something only the Holy Spirit can do in you not something that you can whip up in yourself. Okay, child I'm going to be like a child. So you start reading comic books and playing with Legos. That's not going to get you there. But the Holy Spirit does. In John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so when we're born again, that's the whole idea. If you've heard the phrase born again, it just means being born of the Spirit. It means acquiescing your authority to Jesus. Lord, Come into my life. Holy Spirit, take charge of me. I want to be born anew. And when we are, that's when we start to become smaller in our estimation. We begin to decrease as He increases in our lives. Humbleness sets in. By the way, on the practical side, Jesus really does love kids. He loves children. I mean, when the dailies walk in here alone... I know Jesus just goes, there they are. There are the kids. When anyone brings children in to this fellowship, this family, we need to remember this, because when we started the Bridge Christian Fellowship, we had no childcare on Sundays or Wednesdays at all. In fact, when we first met in the living room, I remember orange juice filling, crayons everywhere. I mean, kids literally were spread out on the floor. There were 20, 25 adults or so, and I think about 90 or 60, So, children in there. There were just kids everywhere. And I had to learn very quickly. I'd open up the Bible, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. All this stuff's going on. And I had to teach over that. And we'd be in the middle of teaching. Literally, remember the night when the orange juice went over? We just kind of had to stop, mop it up. Where were we? Verse 19. Okay, back to it. And yet, those times were precious because they taught me an incredible lesson. And that's the value of the whole family being together. No matter what happens at the Bridge Christian Fellowship, I can promise you this, children will always be welcome in here. They'll always be welcome during worship and communion, and if the parents want to give them the opportunity to Bible time with other kids, that's great. If the parents want the kids to stay in here and they interrupt Pastor Rick, and they make noise and they squeal and squirm, that's fine with me, because Jesus loves the little children. He's not just a Savior of those who come to Him because of what He's done, which is most of us. We realize our great need for us. We wander in our sin. We're lost. We're broken, hurting people. And we say, we need the cross. He's done something I have to have. I need His mercy. He's the Savior of those people, but He's also the Savior of those who are just attracted to Him because of who He is, little kids. They just like Jesus. And He's their Savior too. He has some harsh words for those who would dare to lead children away from Jesus. Verse 5, He says, Whoever receives one such child in My name receives Me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in Me to stumble, the word there is scandalizo, same word applied to the cross, by the way, Someone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. It would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Again, he's not speaking in parables. He is serious. You mess with the faith of a child. You might as well cash in your chips right now because you're history. I want nothing to do with you. Jesus' words. You might as well drown yourself. Don't mess with my children. Don't mess with my little ones. Verse 7, he goes on. Woe to the world, he says, because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Stumbling blocks. Offenses. Jesus says they're inevitable. They're going to come. He knew this because he knew the heart of man. He knew this fellowship long before we ever began. Jesus could look at the Bridge Christian Fellowship and say, you know, I know stumbling blocks are going to come. I know you guys are going to have arguments. I know there's going to be debate. I know there's going to be some tension and anger. I know there are people sitting on a Wednesday night in the barn who just irritate the snot out of someone sitting on the other side. (laughs) Stumbling blocks are inevitable. When people are gathered together. 1 Corinthians 11.19, Paul says, There must be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. In other words, what those stumbling blocks and offenses and factions do is they actually end up highlighting people who love. The love becomes more obvious over and above those factions. Paul said to Pastor Titus in verse, chapter 3, verse 10, he said, reject a factious man after the first and second warning. There's some stern words for you. Paul actually said, in a church, if someone is factious, offensive, if someone literally is deepening division, causing discord, you warn them. You warn them again. And if they're not listening, they're gone. Now that may seem stern, but gang, if there's one thing God will never tolerate, In his church, it's people who divide. He hates divisiveness. And that's what a factious person is. Reject a factious man after first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning being self-condemned. Verse uh, 4, verse 1. The Spirit explicitly says, in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. There are going to be people who get to the point that they don't even recognize their own sin. They're not even thinking about what they're doing. Why am I taking so much time with this? Because Jesus would say to you and to me, don't be surprised. Don't be upset. Don't be driven away when it happens in the church. It's going to happen. I had to accept that as a pastor years ago. There are going to be factions in the church. There are going to be divisions. Good Christian people are going to hurt other good Christian people. It's going to happen. Jesus says it's inevitable. But regarding children specifically, woe to those who cause a child to fall. Verse 80 goes on and says, If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands and two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. Now, is Jesus speaking literally? Of course not, because none of us would be able to read these words tonight. We'd all be blind. We'd have no hands, no feet. We'd be pretty mutilated people. But He's making a very stern point. Cast off anything that might deter you from entrance into the kingdom. Don't hang on to those things that get in the way of your walk with Jesus the Savior. Get rid of them, man. The kingdom's eternal. This life, everything about this life is temporary. Everything in this life that you love, it may be a kind of food, it may be a kind of music, it may be a video game, it may be anything. Whatever it is that you love in this world is temporary. Don't let it get between you and the Lord. Cast it off. By the way, um, do you think Jesus believes there's a literal hell? Liberal theologians would argue the point with the Lord. They don't believe there's a literal hell. They would, they would say things like, "Well, hell really is—it's a concept. You know, it's—it's it's not a real place. It's more of the absence of God. That's hell." I've actually heard that preached by by good preachers. Hell is just the absence of God. New. No. Granted, God will not be there. He will be absent, but it is a literal place. Jesus said in Matthew 10.28, "...don't fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell." Jesus said in Matthew 25.41, He references, quote, "...the eternal fire which has been prepared for the the devil and his angels." Hell is a real place. Do you know that verse for verse Jesus talks about hell more than heaven? Why would He do that? Is He one of those fire and brimstone type preachers? No. He loves so much that He wants to paint an absolutely clear picture of what happens if you reject the Lord and His kingdom. One option. And it's hell and it's real and the fire is hot and the darkness is darker than anything we can even imagine. Horrific. Hell is as real as the place, as a place of, for which it was named, the Valley in Jerusalem, from which hell receives its name. There are three valleys that cut through Jerusalem. There's the, the Kidron Valley that separates the Temple Mount to the west from the Mount of Olives to the east. There's the Tyropoean Valley, which is one of my favorite valleys. It actually is the Valley of the Cheesemakers. I just think that's really funny. And then there's the third valley called the Hinnom Valley. The Hinnom Valley, or the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, literally Gehenna. Gehenna. When you look at this word fiery hell, the word hell there literally translated is Gehenna. The fiery Gehenna. By Jesus' day it was well known throughout Israel that the Valley of Gehenna, Gehenna, was a smoldering trash dump. It's where all the trash went from Jerusalem, and it would be burned there. So there was a constant burning going on in the valley of Gehenna, Gehinnom. That burning, smoking, smoldering dump. But that valley had a far more sinister history. The Bible students may recall, it was a pagan valley. In the days of the Jebusites and the Canaanites, and even some of the more evil kings of Israel, back all the way up to 628 B.C., the Valley of Gehenna was called the Valley of Tophet. Tophet, which is a, a mysterious name, a mysterious word. We're not really sure what it means. They think either it means burning or it means drumming. The Valley of Tophet, which was the location where child sacrifice to the god Molech was made. In that same valley. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 31 The Lord says they built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it did not come into my mind. In other words, God is comparing Himself to the sickness, the twistedness, the perversion of pagan gods saying, you have these gods that require the sacrifice of a child. I wouldn't even think of such a thing. And you have this going on in the valley of Gehenna. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called Tophet, or the valley of the Son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For there they will bury in Tophet, because there is no other place. God pronounces judgment on that valley because of what it was used for. Child sacrifice. The burning of infants. And this judgment happened in the hellish devastation that was brought on by Babylon in 586 B.C. That valley was raised, was cleaned out of all the filth, and ended up being a trash dump. Ironically, it is about this valley of horrific child sacrifice that Jesus says, harm my little ones, and you will burn in a place connected to that. Hurt my children... And your only option is the fiery Gehenna. Verse 10, Jesus says, See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Do children have their own personal guardian angels? Apparently they do. Just taking Jesus at His word, apparently every child has assigned to him or to her an angel who represents them before the Father in heaven who continually sees the Father's face, who has that amazing connection to the Lord. But I want to remind you that your children's security, the security of any children, is not in their guardian angel. <coughs> in fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3 tells us, do you not know that we will judge the angels? Which I think is good, because I, I want to ask mine, where he was when I ran headfirst into that sliding glass door. (laughs) I'd like to ask mine where he was when I went over the handlebars of my bicycle. (laughs) Guardian Schmardian, okay? (laughs) But the Bible does indicate each one of us, as children, there is an angel there, there is a messenger before the Lord. Seriously, our... Our security is not in angels. I, th- I think it's um, interesting that there's such a fascination in the world with angels. And yet our fascination is to be with Jesus, not the angels. The angel said to John in Revelation 19, Don't bow down to me. I'm just, I'm just like you, dude. I'm, we're co-servants together. I'm serving, you're serving, we're both serving the Lord. I am nothing special here. Don't bow down to me. And then he said the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, that great verse. You focus on Jesus. Worship God. Verse 11, Jesus says, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Now this is subtle, but I want to point something out in this verse. The Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And Jesus is talking in the context of children. Talking about children. I've come to save... That which was lost. I've come to save kids. We'll contrast that with a similar verse that's not aimed at children, but aimed at adults. Over in the book of Luke. In Luke, Jesus is at Zacchaeus' place, Luke chapter 19. And he's talking with Zacchaeus, and he's got a whole bunch of people, adults, sitting around a table together. And in Luke 19, verse 10, he says, "...the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost." Talking to adults, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Talking about children, he says, the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. When he talks about children, he leaves out the seeking part. So, so here's some insight into children and sin. Children still need saving, but they don't need seeking. Children still need saving, but they don't need Seeking. What do you mean by that? Look at verse twelve. Jesus says, "What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have gone which have not gone astray. And so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. You might want to underline chapter fourteen or verse fourteen there." It's not the will of your Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones perish. I believe that's a powerful verse even for the abortion argument today. It's not God's will that a single one perish. God has a plan in place for children for saving the little ones. It's interesting to me, children will wander off and get lost, but not intentionally. They just don't know any better. When it comes to sin, children will steal the cookie from the cookie jar. Not necessarily intentionally, they just don't know any better. This sin nature is already at work. It's at work very young in children. The selfishness, the self-centeredness. But they don't know any better. They don't have the concept of right and wrong and the law and, and, and what's truth and what's not. They grow in, we all grow into that. And so as children, they sin but not intentionally. Adults, on the other hand, we wander off and we get, the, we get ourselves lost rebelliously. It is intentional. We know exactly what we're doing when we choose to sin. And so there's a difference which indicates to me that the Lord would have to seek and save the lost adult. Whereas the child just needs saving. He just needs to save. The t- he doesn't have to seek them because they're right there. They still need saving. The cross still needs to be applied, the blood of Jesus, to the life of a child. The adult needs some seeking. Luke chapter 15, Jesus gives the same parable, but in a different setting. Luke chapter 15, and verse 1, I'll just read it to you. It says, The tax collectors and sinners were coming near Him to listen to Him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay, so who are the people gathered around? Tax collectors and sinners. Not children here. And Jesus tells the parable. It's not the same telling. And you'll find this in Scripture. Sometimes the same story will be used, but it's Jesus using it in two different locations for two different reasons. The parable of the lost sheep, He now applies to adults. He says, "'What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go out after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, "'Rejoice with me, I found my sheep which was lost.'" I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven, listen, over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The joy in this story is over a sinner who repents. Adults who know better, who are in rebellion, but repent of it and turn back to the Lord. Adults who need seeking and saving. But back in Matthew 18, the story is different. He says there will be, he rejoices over more more over the, Over it than the 99 which have gone astray. Doesn't talk about repentance there. So, what happens when a child dies? What happens when a two year old or a three year old dies? It's tragic. It's heartbreaking for us. And I've had parents in the past ask me, Where is my child? I'll tell you where. It is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish, they're home. They're with Jesus. They're safe. Jesus gives the same parable with different application. In Luke, He's talking about seeking and saving the rebellious lost. Here in Matthew, He's talking about saving the unintentionally lost children who because of their sin nature would be lost if Jesus hadn't died for them. But because He died, His mercy immediately applies. It's a great assurance. That little ones who die before they know any better are absolutely saved. Well, okay, Rick, so what's the age of accountability? At what point do they have to be responsible for their actions? You're only going to find that verse in the first book of opinions, okay? So we're not going to go there tonight. Now, knowing the stumbling blocks and offenses. And factions are going to arise. Jesus turns his attention from the larger kingdom more distinctly to the church. The second thing in our outline, conflict resolution for the church. Verse 15. Jesus says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. This is the second and only other time Jesus is specifically going to talk about the church before his resurrection. And that's important. The first time we saw Matthew chapter 16, where he said to Peter, "...upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall shall have been bound or loosed in heaven." Two times he speaks specifically about the church prior to his death, burial, resurrection. Only twice. And in this second time, Jesus looking ahead, knowing factions, knowing divisions, knowing problems will arise, gives us some organizational instruction on how to deal with conflict resolution. By the way, this isn't a new approach. This is godly wisdom from the law itself. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17 says, You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, that is, go to and talk to your neighbor about it, but you shall not incur sin because of him. I was thinking today, I don't know if you've ever heard of Judy Gold, She's a comedian, very funny. And she was talking about her mom, who was so good at guilt trips, Jewish comedian, talking about her Jewish mother, who really laid in the guilt. And she said, it was like this. I remember saying, Mom, what do you want for Christmas this year? And my mother said, what do I want? I want you kids to get along. That's all I want. Just for you kids to get along. That would be a great Christmas for me. Right? Had any of you moms ever said that? <laughs> Don't buy me anything. Just get along with your siblings, please. <laughs> And you know, when you hear Jesus talk about this whole concept of conflict resolution and going to your brother and making things right, you start to get the feeling that maybe God just wants His kids to play nice. Maybe it really does matter to the Lord how we choose to treat one another. I believe that's the Father's heart. So He gives a three-step process for uh, conflict resolution so we can learn how to love our brothers and sisters. He says, first of all, if your brother sins, go to him in private. And it's important this specifically implies a sin that's committed against you by someone else. So think about that. Whose responsibility is it if someone offends you? If someone sins against you, whose responsibility according to Jesus is it to make it right? It's yours. It's not theirs. Wait a minute. Hold on. <laughs> He sins against me and I have to go make it right? Exactly. Exactly. That's the heart of the Father. It's what He did. It's your responsibility to make the wrong right, not the person who sins. I mean, this is so radical, so different than how we think. By the way, how is this attempt at restoration to take place? Privately. One-on-one. Just the two of you. Not in terms of gossip and slander, getting out there. You know, if we followed just this first part of Jesus' conflict resolution plan for the church, I'm sure half the heartache and most of the gossip in churches would completely cease. But Jesus takes us to part two. If they don't want to listen to you, it doesn't work, there's a hard heart there, and you've tried, then you take one or two witnesses with you. And I truly believe, gang, the implication here is taking someone who is a witness. Someone who has seen the behavior. Someone who maybe personally was affected by it as well. Not someone who doesn't have a clue who you filled them in on your side do you take then to gang up on the person but someone who has witnessed it. So that it can be established what really happened. Look, I talked to you about this. I know you don't believe me but maybe you'll listen to her or or maybe you'll listen to him. We want to... We're trying to share this with you together. Again, if we followed this part, part two of Jesus' instruction, I believe another 49% of inter-church gossip and slander would stop. And then the 1% would be left to the church. Which would make my job a whole lot easier. <laughs> the third thing Jesus says is, tell it to the church. That word ecclesia, that He's only used one other time. The called out. My uniquely called out people, the church. He, the, the implication, the inference here is the leadership. We tell it then to the leadership. It doesn't mean come on a Sunday morning and go, Alright, everybody listen up. <laughs> Barb has offended me. Cheryl and I both went and talked to her about it. And she's not listening. So? <laughs> she sticks out her tongue. That's good. That's good. But here's where the binding and loosing comes in. The binding and loosing comes by spiritual authority. The wording in Matthew 16 and here is exactly the same. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Not will be bound, has been bound already. In other words, if you bind something here or you loose something here, it's already been done by the Father. He has put it now on your heart to behave based on His Responsibility, His authority, not based on your own authority. We're only functioning in and by the authority of our Father. Now we've talked about this recently, but listen, don't forget the point of all of this. This three-step process of conflict resolution is not to get you right. It's to restore the broken relationship. The point of all this... It's restoration and forgiveness and loving course correction. Galatians six one. Paul says, "Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Bearing one another's burdens does not mean help someone move, although that's nice. Bearing their burdens means bearing their sin burdens." It means walking with them and helping them through the struggle even if they have sinned against you and taking it on your shoulders and going, I'm going to wear this with you. I love you too much just to let this go. I want to see restoration here. The Bible has an interesting example of this conflict resolution process that Paul uses. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says it's actually reported that there is an immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. Hmm. Just sick. There's a twisted perversion going on in the church at Corinth. And Paul says, In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is by the time the conflict resolution process has gotten all the way to taking it to the church. Going to the person in private didn't work. Taking a witness didn't work. Now it gets to Paul and Paul says, Church, you've got to deal with this. You need to cast this guy out. This is church discipline at its most serious. He needs to be kicked out the door. And there are an awful lot of churches today that won't do it that allow sin not only to remain but to increase in a church body because they're not willing to take the hard step. But gang, hear this. Even in that extreme, the purpose of rebuke, the purpose of church discipline is always restoration. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, speaking of the same man that Paul says he's had enough. All right, he's had enough. He says, I urge you, now reaffirm your love for him. Bring him back. Go get him. He's hurt bad enough. He gets what he did. Restoration is the first course of action our church must and will take. Restoration will always be what we're about. No matter what it looks like, we will always seek to restore first. And we will go as far as we possibly can in restoration. And only when I see, and this is just me speaking personally, but when I see an individual sin or problem infecting the body, causing division, causing pain among other people and growing, that's when I would step in and say, this stops, this stops here, this stops now. You need to go elsewhere. But it takes an awful lot to get to that point. Because the heart of the Father is restoration. That's why I pointed out this is one of two times Jesus even speaks the word church before the resurrection. The first time He's talking about the faith of the church and the second time He's talking about the standard of the church. Restore, restore, restore. You seek resolution in any conflict. You have a brother or sister you've got a problem with, man, talk it out with them. Love them. Forgive them. Go to them. As far as I'm concerned, where there's repentance, no matter how shabby, thin, or bedraggled, we have a responsibility to restore in gentleness. Matthew 18, verse 19, going on. Jesus says, Again I say to you, that if any two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by My Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in My name, I am there in their midst. I love that because it means He's here right now, tonight. But there's a deeper meaning than just the gathering of a church fellowship. Jesus uses the word agree. If any two of you agree on earth about anything you may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. That word agree is a great word in the Greek. It's symphaneo. Does that sound familiar? Symphaneo. It's where we get our word symphony. He's talking about an agreement like a symphony. Like like the, the strings, the violins, the cellos, the violas the horn section, the percussion, all reading the same sheet of music, all unified in sound, all chords played together, all the music coming out in a beautiful connection. And it never starts out like that. Has anyone ever been in an elementary school orchestra? (laughs) Or a junior high band? Like fingernails on a chalkboard, you know what I'm saying? Scary stuff. I, I, I saw this today. My mom sent me a an email on church bulletin bloopers. I'm sur- sure you've seen some of these, but I like this one. The sermon topic for tonight's evening service is what is hell? Come early and listen to our choir practice. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Few things are more grating on the nerves than either people singing or playing instruments that are not in tune together, that are not synchronized, that are not harmonized. And I really wonder if that's how our prayers sound to the Father when we pray to him in discord. When we pray out of unity, in disharmony. See, the Bible says how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And so what the Lord here is saying is, I want my church, my called out, my special people, I want you to be like a symphony. I so want you to to maintain love and restoration and forgiveness in relationships such that when you pray, it's a symphony. You're like an orchestra. And not an orchestra of people scratching on their instruments, not knowing how to play. But people who have been playing all their lives in the love of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of Father, unity the Father calls us to. How in this world of hurts and abuses can we possibly nurture this kind of unity? Verse 21. Jesus then came. I'm sorry, Peter came and said to Jesus, after listening to all this, he's taking it all in, just like you tonight. Peter's listening. Uh-huh, uh-huh Probably taking some notes, thinking it through. And he comes to Jesus and says, Okay, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And here we get to the third part of our, our outline, compassionate release in the kingdom. Compassionate release in the kingdom. If there is one standard by which the Lord measures relationships, this is it. He applies it to the church, but He applies it to the overall kingdom. This is the big, overarching kingdom standard, compassionate release. In a word, forgiveness. Now, traditional rabbinic teaching stated that a person was responsible to forgive three times. A good Jew was responsible for three acts of forgiveness if someone wrongs them three times. The fourth time, you don't have to anymore. You're released yourself from having to forgive the person or deal with them at all. So Peter, knowing this, forgive three times, he doubles it and adds one just to be generous. Okay, How about seven times? This will impress the Lord. Jesus takes that rabbinical three times, (laughs) he multiplies it by 163 and a third to a sum of 490. That is 70 times 7. Now I know some of you are saying, okay, Rick, the implication is not 490. Okay, the implication, 70 times 7, is complete forgiveness, ongoing forgiveness. I know that. But I challenge every single one of you to go into all of your relationships and count up 490 individual acts of forgiveness with each and every person who has ever wronged you. You couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. I'd forget somewhere along maybe 14 or 15, I'd lose track. What was that, what was that number I was on? I don't remember. And I'm lousy in math anyway, but I don't think that's the point here. Jesus says seventy times seven, this this ridiculous number, which is not something that any average person could keep track of, and that's the point. Love keeps no record of wrongs. First Corinthians thirteen verse five. Love does not take into account a wrong suffer. There's no accounting for people hurting you if you love like Jesus loved. You just keep forgiving and forget. What are you up to? One hundred eighty-seven. I don't know. But I'm loving. I'm loving like Jesus. Love doesn't keep track. There is no role for accountants in the kingdom of God. At least for accounting purposes. There's no computer system for tracking the number of negative hits on the heart. You won't find it in the kingdom. There's no Costco employee standing at the door punching a handheld counter for each wrong that walks into your life. (laughs) If you understand what we're saying here, love does not track. Love keeps no record, no accounting. You can't add it up. Jesus says 70 times 7, you just forgive, you forgive, you forgive. Why, Lord? And I think it's a fair question. Why should I be so willing to forgive those who keep wronging me over and over and over? Because I'll tell you, wrong me once, I'll forgive you. Wrong me twice, I'll forgive again. Three times, I'm going to get a little annoyed, but for Jesus' sake, I'll do it again. And I could probably last up to seven like Peter. But man, you get to 8, 9, 10, 27, 183. Now I'm starting to go, dude, when's this going to stop? How far are you going to push me here? Why should I? Lord, Lord, why should I keep doing this? Why do I keep cutting this person a break? Verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents, that's 15 years worth of wages, was brought to him. Since he did not have the means to repay, the Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. And that was Jewish law. That's the way it worked. You got a debt that you couldn't repay? You went into slavery. And you worked to repay the debt. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Now watch this. The Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Compassionate release. That's compassionate release. He didn't lower the debt. He didn't lower the payments. It wasn't like one of those credit card companies you know, that you can call up and they'll call all the people that, that you owe money to and they'll lo- lower it down to an easy monthly payment. No. Gone. The debt, history. He forgave it. Verse 28. But... That slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, about a day's worth of wages. A hundred denarii. And he began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling. And he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw that what had happened, and they were deeply grieved and came and reported to the Lord all that had happened, then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Jesus says, and very seriously, gang, my Heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Two quick reasons why compassionate release is the kingdom standard. Why this is the standard by which we must learn to live, both now and eternally. Number one, there is freedom in forgiveness. There's freedom in forgiveness, both for the forgiver and the forgiven. Both sides get freed up. The tragedy of this parable is that the wicked slave ends up in the very place he tried to put his fellow slave. Debtor's prison. It's like someone saying, I'm not going to that, forgive that guy. I'm not going to let him off the hook. He's hurt me too many times. I'm not going to let him do it. And you know what happens? You end up in debtor's prison. You end up indebted to that relationship that is sour and bad and evil. You're stuck. I'm not forgiving him. And so you yourself are going to carry that weight the rest of your life. And you know what comes out of it? Bitterness. Anger. Hurt. Woundedness. Self-pity. Malice. And it will bleed over into your other relationships. I know of at least one woman who I believe it killed. The doctors, the doctors say she had a brain aneurysm. I don't think so. I don't know if I've shared this with you before. I know of a woman who was badly wronged by a pastor, not me, but by a pastor in a church. And years later, the pastor came to his senses and wrote her a letter of apology, pleading with her to forgive him. She folded up the letter, stuck it in her purse, and it remained there until she died. And she never forgave him. And of all the people I've known in my life, and this is someone none of you know, but of all the people I've known in my life, she has to top the list of people who are bitter. It ruined her. Because she would not, could not forgive. She landed herself in debtor's prison. And so Jesus says, you got to be born again. You need that childlike conversion. Isn't it amazing how quickly kids will forgive each other? I remember coming home, bleeding out my, my mouth and my nose because Trig Blazing Game down the street Trig, Trigger was his name great name for a kid Trigger I don't know if it was after the horse or a gun either way it wasn't good <laughs> bleeding, crying Trigger threw a blood dirt clot in my face and then the next day coming home and tell my, telling my mom hey Trigger and I are going to trick or treat together this year and my mother saying no you're not you're going to come home with a bag of dirt no you're not going to trick or treat with trig but from the mindset of a child forgiveness it's easy I don't care what you did to me you want to be my friend now okay cool let's play and it's that childishness that child likeness Jesus is calling us to and don't worry Russ is very concerned Russ is concerned because in the the uh, quest for authentic manhood We're already told ahead of time that we have to give up our boyhood. And Russ is not like that. I don't think that's what he's talking about, Russ. I'm sure it's not. It's not childishness. It's childishness that we're supposed to give up. Not childlikeness. That purity of the child. Gang, there is freedom in forgiveness. And it's not just attitude adjustment to a new religion. It's heart change to a new freedom. That the more I learn to forgive, and the more I'm able to forgive, and the more the Spirit enables me to forgive, man, the freer I become. until I'm not carrying that stuff around. But listen, it's not just that there's freedom and forgiveness in Christ Jesus, number two and last one. We are freed to forgive. There's freedom and forgiveness, but now... We are freed in Christ Jesus to forgive. Paul says Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. And that's the key. I was freed to forgive. I was forgiven into freedom, so now I can forgive other people. Why would I, that's the answer to the question. Why should I be willing to keep forgiving someone? Because your Lord forgave you, Rick. Because I forgave you a thousand times over. I gave you on the cross complete forgiveness. That's why you should forgive. You don't have to find it in the other person. You don't even have to find the willingness in your own heart. All you have to do is come to the cross and there you will find the reason why you should forgive every wrong ever done to you by everybody. That's where Jesus has taken us. When He spoke Oh, those revolutionary words on the cross. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When Jesus said that, everything changed. For the first time in history, true freedom entered the world. So that we can look at Jesus and say, Wow. Okay, Lord, you did that for me. I have no other choice. I have now been freed to free other people in forgiveness. That is kingdom mentality. Childlike conversion gained by the Spirit of God brings access to the kingdom. Conflict, resolution, and compassionate release, these are the eternal standard of those who walk in the kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Your teaching cuts to the heart. You get right to where we are. Thank You. And thank You for the reminder, that powerful reminder, that every wrong of my entire life has been forgiven by You. Wrongs beyond number, beyond counting. Far beyond 490. I am a forgiven and freed person by the cross and by Your actions, Your love, Your mercy, Your grace, Father. And we gather our hearts tonight, unified, Lord, we pray, thank You and praise You for Your forgiveness. And now, Lord, we just seek opportunity to go out and do the same. May we forgive, even as our Father in Christ Jesus has forgiven us in Jesus' name. Amen.